welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, Velo News Managing Editor, joined as always by my extraordinary co-host, Coach Connor. If you've read the January-February issue of Velo News, you surely noticed a feature article written by Trevor and I trying to answer some big questions about climbing. The gist of it, we turned into mad scientists and convinced New World Tour pro Sepkus, who's now riding for Lotto NL Yumbo, Colorado native, to time trial a few bolder climbs with us in the quest for our answers. Chief among the questions was simply, does climbing come down to power to weight, or does your climbing technique make a difference? In other words, if two riders weigh the same and average the same wattage, will they have the same time up a climb regardless of how they ride? Answering that question led to several other questions, including how does a rider's type affect their climbing and what's the difference between pros and amateurs? Let's not keep it a secret, Sep was a lot faster than us. In fact, he was fantastically fast. In terms of the other questions, however, we discovered what we thought were some surprising answers about how different riders climb, how cadence plays a part, and if those basic online calculators you can find really can predict your time up a climb. We also collected a ton of climbing data on all of us, including novel on-the-road biomechanical analyses. The other thing that surprised us while doing our research for this article is the number of those questions that haven't been addressed by the current scientific research. A month ago, we posted a podcast discussing what that current research says about climbing. This article is all about what we discovered that the current research doesn't fully address. That's why we're so excited. This special episode of Fast Talk takes a deeper dive into our little experiment than any number of magazine pages ever could. Over the next hour, we'll go a little more in-depth, and maybe in times a, little, a lot more in-depth, into our results and what we think they mean. No, our experiment could not be published in the journal Science or Nature or the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. But we had a lot of fun, and we discovered some things that we're very excited about, and most importantly, we hope our turn as mad scientists ultimately helps you all become better climbers. Joining us for both this podcast and someone who helped us an immense amount out on the road is Ryan Kohler of the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Ryan was there to test us, take our lactate levels at the tops of these climbs, laugh at us when we were gagging and choking and wheezing, and he helped us interpret all of the data. We couldn't have done it without him. We couldn't have done it without the Performance Center. We thank them profusely for their help. And with that, let's make you fast at climbing. Hey Trevor, let me tell you about this really cool life insurance company that specializes in athletes, healthy, active people, cyclists, and runners. It's called Health IQ, and they're able to give us favorable rates for insurance because we're so healthy. They have a special website for Fast Talk listeners, www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk. While you're on their site, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or Map My Run account, or other proof that you're a regular cyclist or athlete and get a better quote. That's a pretty cool product, don't you think? What did we really want to look at in this uh, 
this study. And maybe Trevor, do you want to sort of uh, outline what we were looking for? Yeah, I'll start by saying this is definitely the three of us at our nerdiest. We kind of put on the mad scientist caps and said, what what can we do that would be fun with climbing uh, that, that hasn't been done before? Certainly, this isn't going to be published in any major journal. It, it isn't that sort of quality. But we had a lot of fun exploring things that we couldn't find answers for anywhere. And we're, as we'll, we'll kind of talk about through the course of this podcast, found some really kind of cool things that we haven't seen before. So the driving question that started this whole thing was really wanting to explore this idea of, is climbing just power to weight? Basically, if you average a certain wattage, is that going to determine how fast you go up a climb? Or does the terrain affect it? Does the, the climbing style affect it? Does the rider affect it? So that was the driving question. And that led to a couple other questions. One was, um, about different rider types. So that's part of the reason we had Chris, Sepp, and I. Chris and Sepp are both pure climbers. Um, I am very, very much the the time trialer style rider, which means I like to just put my head down and go really, really steady and never get out of the saddle. Climbers like to get out of the saddle. They like to attack. They like to jump. So we wanted to see if that different style, that different type of, of rider affects how they climb. And then the third question that unfortunately just naturally came out of this study was looking at the difference between amateurs and pros because Sepp was clearly a pro rider. Chris <laughs> and I clearly weren't. In so many ways, he was far superior and more professional than we were. And is this the point? Can I, can I give my excuses now? We have to do this before the podcast is over. Uh, please, Trevor, give us all your many excuses. Yes. So, so first of all, here is one of the differences between pros and amateurs. Sepp gave us all his excuses before he did the time trials, and then he absolutely crushed them. Uh, <laughs> Chris and I gave no excuses beforehand. Now we're into giving our excuses. Now that we've done the time trials. But I am going to say when you hear all my numbers, in my defense, I had just arrived at altitude. I had just taken my three-week off-season break. And my back was out. So please don't judge me by some and, of the things we're about to tell you. The biggest excuse of all, your biz, your biggest excuse of all you forgot to mention. What was that? You're old. Oh, thanks, Chris. Yes, I am old. <laughs> so are you. I'm not as old. <laughs> that's, that's one of my excuses. Uh, Chris, right. in his defense, was actually sick when we did these time trials. Yeah, I, well, I was, I was in the midst of cyclocross season. Yeah, what, for whatever that means. It means I had a, a lot of practice accelerating out of dirt corners, but climbing legs, so to speak, weren't really there. But I didn't perform terribly, I wouldn't say. But yeah, on the second uh, time trial, I was pretty pretty sick, um, recovering as fast as I could, at least. And uh, I think that showed. So, hey, Trevor, tell us a little bit more about why we chose the people. We, we, we briefly discussed that. Um, but then also, the particular hills that we chose, the segments that we chose? I think the people's a simple answer. Uh, you and I were crazy enough to do this, and, and we actually convinced Sepp to do it. So uh, that, that's our, our selection of people. But we did talk about the fact that we wanted a couple contrasts. We, we definitely wanted a pro, you know, somebody at the highest level, to see how they climb. And we definitely wanted to be able to compare that time trialer versus the climber. 
since SEP is at a, a, a much higher level than I am, uh, it wasn't a great point of comparison uh, looking at me versus SEP. Chris and I are, are usually pretty similar level. It, when we did this, we were originally going to do the, these time trials in the summer, and at that point, Chris and I would have been pretty much the same level. Uh, we weren't quite the same level when we did it because, Chris, as you pointed out, you were on, on top form for cyclocross, and I was just coming off of my off season. But you still right. get that good contrast looking at you and I uh, of the time trial style rider versus the, the climbing style rider. So for the climbs, we use three climbs, but we're really focusing on two of them, which is Flagstaff and Left Hand. And anybody who's been to Boulder, Colorado, you know these climbs. They're, they're pretty famous. Flagstaff is very twisty. It's a good Alpe d'Huez type climb. It's very variable grade. Uh, you have stretches that are just 4%. You have stretches that are get up to 16 to 18%. So it is a climber's climb. And if you go on Strava, you'll see a lot of top names on, on, in that top 20 on the, on the list. For me, it was a 30-minute climb. For SEP, not so much. So we'll call it a 30-minute to much faster time. <laughs> Left hand, we basically took a segment of that climb because the whole climb itself takes an hour and a half. So we used a segment that was about similar time to Flagstaff. And interestingly, its starting altitude and finishing altitude was virtually identical to the Flagstaff segment. And if you're in Boulder and you want to try these, we mark these segments uh, in, um, in Strava. But the idea here was to get two climbs in that 25-minute to 30-minute range, one being very steep and variable. Left hand is just kind of this steady, mostly 5 to 6% grade the whole way up. It does get a little steeper at points, but it's a quite consistent grade climb. So we wanted to compare those two types yeah. of climbs. And I think it's even closer to 4% on average. It's, it is not steep yeah. and it does not change. Yeah. The other one that we threw in there just to experiment a little bit uh, or get a little more data was part of what's called Magnolia. The whole climb is 30 minutes and ridiculously steep. We use the steepest 10-minute stretch of that climb. Uh, so it was just painful. And it was basically to see uh, just how fast each of us could climb. Maybe we could move on to some of the interesting, well, there wasn't that much equipment that isn't available to most people. We obviously had our power meters, our heart rate monitors. Something that maybe not everybody can do on their own is we were taking lactate levels out in the field and Ryan was helping with that. But I'm kind of curious to have Ryan describe the Leomo devices that were used to get some interesting biomechanical data from Trevor and Sepp on some of the climbs. So yeah, maybe Ryan, could you describe the Leomo devices for us? Sure, They're, um, <clears throat> the Leomo devices were, were sort of very large Garmin's that focus on picking up uh, biomechanical data. So we had um, each rider outfitted with accelerometers in, in some different areas on the body. We had, we had two on the thigh, um, one on the low back, and two more on the uh, feet. And um, that just gave us a good kind of lower body overview of what was going on as they were climbing. And uh, the Leoma devices pick up a ton of data. Uh, the file sizes for a short ride are, are massive. So um, we get a lot of data for, throughout the entire pedal stroke. Yeah, we had those on everyone as they were doing the climbs. And basically, it'll, it'll pick up things like ranges of motion in the legs and the feet, pick up maximums, minimums, averages. 
we can see uh, maximum and minimum of what? Oh, sorry, angles and okay. ranges of motion. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we'll see how those uh, angles change over time. And then we have uh, things like pelvic tilt and rotation in there as well. So uh, it really just allows us to get a lot of data for you know how the body's moving over those climbs with even small changes in the in terrain or uh, you know when fatigue starts to set in uh, we can see those changes uh, come up biomechanically so um, it's a great way to just sort of dig deeper into some of the data as since we had lactate data at the end we knew how hard people were going but the Leoma devices allowed us to get a better sense for their pedaling style and and see what types of riders how like how they pedal differently and see if there were any changes that would indicate any fatigue or anything else like that as they were climbing. I'm sure a lot of people are going to say at some point when they read the article, oh, well, wheels would have made a difference or or, this bike would have made a difference. We really tried to eliminate that as a factor. Yes, equipment was was probably can can affect your climbing, but we basically standardized all of us. We were all on very similar race bikes with very similar race wheels, so that wasn't really going to be something that differentiated one of us. Um, We were also all using our own power meters, and power meters are notoriously variable. Um, You have two power meters, they're going to read differently. What we did try to do, thanks to to Ryan, is when we tested in the lab to find our physiological thresholds, we actually did it on our own bikes. So we made sure that the the power meter that recorded our, our physiological threshold was the same one that we were using for the time trials to at least get that consistency. Uh, the other thing that was nice is Ryan tested all of us on the same Wahoo kicker so we could at least see how we um, each of our power meters varied from that Wahoo. Um, and Ryan, maybe correct me on this, but when I, when we looked at the data, for example, my threshold on the Wahoo was 300 watts. My threshold on the uh, my power meter was 300 watts. So I seem to be right on with the Wahoo. With Sep, his threshold on the, I'm trying to remember this, but I believe his Wahoo threshold was 330 and his uh, threshold on his power meter was 326. I might have those reversed. They were definitely 326 and 330. They were close. Yeah, so he it was, was in very that close. Range. Chris was the one that we saw a big variance. On the Wahoo, he was... Because I broke the machine. <laughs> power, too much power. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what you were saying about SEP. I remember asking you, Brian, after the test, you're like, he just wouldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> But Chris was 280 on the Wahoo and 267 on his power meter. So that was a about a 6% difference. And his so his power meter on his bike was reading low. And that's going to be important later because uh, when we did all the calculations, we it, it, based on his, his bike's power meter, um, it kept underestimating him, his times. And some of that information or some of the... Basically, the fact that my power meter was reading low was was um, backed up by the prediction calculators that you used online. Bike calculate. What what are the names of them again, Trevor? Cyclinganalytics.com and bikecalculator.com. Yeah, so we, it was bikecalculator.com that we ended up using in the the article. We we I tried to use Analytic Cyclist, but there's a lot of information that you need to put in there, like uh, very particulars of the air pressure. 
the rating the uh, kind of basically the gradient of the road, not the the steepness, but but how rugged the road is, for lack of a better word. There were a lot of things that we didn't have the information for, so I really couldn't get decent predictions off of analytic cyclist. Back up for just a second. What we were looking to see is, does it come down to power to weight? And there, these these websites have engines where you plug in some variables and it will spit out a predicted time based on those variables, length, grade, etc. And we wanted to see how accurately they would predict our, our times. Right. The other reason we ended up tossing analytic cyclists is, is for the article, uh, thinking of our listeners. Bike calculator is kind of nice that you put in it um, things like, were you in the drops or were you on the hoods? It, it's very user-friendly, where analytic cyclist is asking things like, please give your, your exact frontal area, which nobody's really going to know. <laughs> so analytic cyclist, fantastic That's tool. That's very personal, too. Very personal. Fantastic tool if you have all that information, but, but most people aren't going to have that information. So we went with a tool that, that any of our listeners or, and our readers um, would be able to use. And the really interesting thing about Bike Calculator is all the variables were the same for all three of us, except for two things, our power and our weight. And what did we find? I mean, we found some pretty incredible uh, results with that in terms of the accuracy of their predictions. Basically spot on. Right. So bearing in mind, we use very different uh, types of climbs. We had very different styles of riders. And when all you do is put in an average wattage, that doesn't say anything about what was this person's style? Were they standing up? Were they sitting down? Were they punching over the steep parts and then slowing down on the easy parts? Or were they trying to hold a consistent wattage? None of that goes into average power. So considering the fact that the only things that differed between the three of us were that entry for our average power and our weight. And we came into the lab before we did the time trials and Ryan would weigh us full kit with our bike. So exactly what we would weigh out on the road. So you look at my results, on left hand, my actual time was 29.01. My predicted time on bike calculator was 29.03. On Magnolia, my actual time was 12.51. My predicted time was 12.51. I was actually the one anomaly where it underguessed my time on Flagstaff, but it was still pretty good. So my actual time was 30 minutes, 8 seconds. My predicted time was 30 minutes, 22 seconds. In the case of Sepp, it underestimated his times on all three climbs, but on all three climbs, it was by exactly 7 seconds. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty damn accurate. (laughs) So, for example, on uh, Flagstaff, he did 23.45. His estimated time was 23.38. Uh, he really needs to go faster. I mean, oh, God, that 20, is, 2338 would be much more impressive to me. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> so after Come all on, his expectations, Seth, Come on. So, so here's our quick side note. Seth beforehand was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want people seeing my numbers in November. I'm so out of shape right now. This is a famous climb. This is a climb that a whole ton of pros have done on Strava. Sep goes out and it's... You know, 32 degrees out. It's cold. We're all bundled up. And he sets the second fastest time on Flagstaff. At least on Strava. The only time that is faster than him on Strava is Tom Danielson. And Tom Danielson set that two days after getting busted for doping. 
Well, I talked to Sepp yesterday, in fact, and he was like, no, I really wasn't riding much. Um, the numbers based on previous year compared to previous years, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty low and, and, and similar to where I have been in the past. So in terms of her, his perception, he was in, you know, the place you would expect him to be at in November, which is not great shape. And to set that time to ride that fast, feeling that way at that time of the year, I have uh, a lot of, I'm excited to see what he can do in the world tour. He's probably going to get his head kicked in a little bit this first year, maybe years after that, but he obviously has some incredible natural talent. So basically what we're saying is with, with what we're seeing from this, this guy, keep an eye on him. Um, yeah. it, it's impressive. Yes. Yeah. So, so just rounding it out. So th this was almost even more proof for me. Uh, Chris, your times, estimated times, were way over what you actually did. So, for example, on Flagstaff, your time was 27.01. Uh, your bike calculator time was 28.18. But on all three climbs, it came up with a time that was about 5% slower, which, and going back to what we talked, to, talked about just a minute ago with the power meters, your power meter was under-reading by, a, if the Wahoo kicker was accurate, your power yep. meter was under reading about five, 6%. Right. Okay. So in a lot of ways, this information probably isn't surprising to people. A lot of people would say weight or uh, power to weight is what it takes to be a good climber. Maximizing that ratio and, and having a good power to weight ratio is, is really what it comes down to. And we only confirmed that with our little experiment, or at least part of our experiment. What's really interesting, I think, is how we got there and, and what uh, we found when we dug a little deeper into the data and we looked at how we rode these particular climbs. But before we move on, I just want to emphasize this. This was surprising to me. It was shocking how accurate these estimated times were considering the, the, the few variables that we put into these, these tools. I really did not expect to see that sort of accuracy. That, that was shocking to me. It might be my experience with the hour record and plugging numbers into a formula. A totally, totally different scenario, but I've been through this before and, and have seen what you can do with these calculators. So maybe that's part of why I'm not as shocked. But that being said, to, to have it literally predict your time to the second on Magnolia is, is, is pretty shocking. You're right. You're right. And within two seconds for a 30 minute climb up left hand. Yeah. Especially because when I looked at the tool, it was just things like, are you on the hoods? Are you, are you in the drops versus analytic cyclists where you got to get in frontal area and it's asking for all the, these really scientific density, variables and, and temperature. Yeah. Wind speed. And, and, Bike calculators, like no, and are you on tubulars or on or are you on knobby tires? It was, it, those were the things, and and it was really very simple to answer questions, and I was putting all this stuff in, going, it ain't even going to be close. So I, I will tip my hat to who to the creator of bike calculator. You impressed me. All right, moving on. Let's talk a little bit more about what we found when we dug a little deeper into the data. It's unfortunate that we can't, well, we, at some point you will see this, either online or in the magazine, these 
heat maps that you created. And maybe maybe you want to talk about how you created them, Trevor, and then we can dig into the details of what they're showing us and some pull out some of the in, most interesting findings there. First of all, I will tip my hat to the folks over at uh, Training Peaks. This is a, a variation on a graph that they created in WKO that I spent some time modifying for our article, but it's a pretty cool graph. And basically what it does is you you take your training zones, your, your power training zones, and it color codes them. Because if you ever look at a graph of your power, it's a very quite variable line, and it's really hard to see what's going on with your power. You can't look at a power line and just go, okay, so right now the, you are in zone two, now you are in sweet spot, now you are up at threshold. So it helps with that. It basically, anytime you're in your, your threshold range, it color codes it yellow. If you're in your VO2 max range, it color codes it orange. Sweet spot is this more kind of beige-ish color. What people think of as zone two, what I call aerobic threshold, is green. And then that easy LSD zone one pace is green. Um, and finally, when you're above VO2 max, when you're in an anaerobic capacity, it's just a deep red. So you can take a look at the article and see the heat maps of our different time trials. But it really showed both the differences between the time trial style rider uh, and the climber style rider. And it also showed the difference uh, between a, a very experienced pro and Chris and I. Yeah. So if you were looking at Trevor's, for example, starts off and he's in the red. But generally, if you just glanced at this thing, you'd quickly understand that he was spending a lot of time in those couple of those yellower um, shades. And that meant that he was riding at threshold, essentially, or very close to it. You know, and then you look down at Sep's graphic and it's entirely red and orange, deep orange. And that's it's just an instant read of what's going on in terms of where they're riding at. And this was one of the really important discoveries that we made when you're looking at a climber versus a time trial, time trialer. So we, we felt, at least for our article, we answered this question that, yeah, it comes down to power to weight. But that did raise the second question of, so are you doomed to whatever power is measured as your, your, your lactate threshold? So, for example... In the lab, my lactate threshold was measured at, uh, I think it was 310. So, 300. Or was it 300? Thank you. So am I destined to go up a climb at 300 watts? And you do see, at least we saw a difference in, in the style of rider. So let's start with kind of the obvious one. I'm the time trial style rider. And it seems in my case, I'm somewhat destined or, or limited by my, my physiological threshold. Uh, you always expect somebody to do a 20 minute, 20 to 30 minute time trial, a little over their physiological threshold. And that's exactly what I did. So my physiological threshold was 300. And what was really interesting was on both Flagstaff and left hand, the, the two long climbs, I averaged exactly 319 watts, which was about 105, 106% of my physiological threshold. So right. I went a little over, not a lot. And it seems in my case, as the time trial style rider, I have that limit. I have that line. I just ride at it, and, and I'm kind of stuck there. It was a very different story with with Chris and Sep. They didn't seem to be as limited. Uh, Sep was quite phenomenal on on Flagstaff. 
his physiological threshold was 330 watts. On Flagstaff, he averaged 387 watts, so way above his physiological threshold. That was, uh, Chris, you just said that was what 119 percent of his physiological 117 and a half percent above lactate threshold. Yeah, right. you weren't quite as dramatic, but you were pretty darn close. So yeah, 267 in the lab and 309 up Flagstaff for right. 27 minutes. Right. 115.6%. But then you look at your left-hand climbs, and interestingly, that came down. Both of you on the flatter, steadier climb um, averaged closer to like 110, 111% of your threshold. So it, it was lower power, closer to your physiological threshold. So you weren't as consistent as I was. I seemed to just lock in. You guys seem to have that ability on these steeper, more variable climbs uh, to exceed your physiological threshold. And there were some clues to why that was in the heat maps. And Chris, as the climber, you should probably be the one one addressing this. Yeah, I think uh, you look at the heat maps, there's a gradient line on there so you can actually see where the the, the, the gradient is changing, getting steep, and you'll notice that both Sep and I have these, these bursts of power where we're charging up steeper sections, at least in part, but we're not paying a physiological price, uh, especially in comparison to someone like Trevor. He really pays the price if he goes too far above threshold. He'll Essentially, he blows up. Um, you see that uh, on both the uh, heat map and what we'll talk about in a little bit, you see that in his his um, form on the bike, w which we we discovered through the Leomo device in the biomechanics. So it's really interesting that when when you compare Sep and I on Flagstaff versus our uh, efforts on left hand, we actually, in a sense, struggle more when the gradient is consistent. And I think that's, I know we're jumping ahead, uh, but that's really one of the more interesting findings of all of this stuff is the hypothesis that you came up with, Trevor, based on this information. I don't know if you want to share that now. Yeah, so that was fascinating when we added in the, the lactate data. And Ryan, thanks again for uh, sitting there at the top of some cold climbs and, and taking our lactate levels. But again, you, you saw with me as the time trialer, I had very consistent wattage, and I had pretty consistent lactates at the end of, of each climb. Well, so Ryan, why do you why would you take a lactate at the end of these climbs? What is that showing you? Yeah, I mean that one. You know, we'll we'll end up seeing just how hard you were going, and uh, yeah, I had the easy job, even though it was cold. You guys were doing all the hard work, but yeah, the lactates will give us an idea since these climbs are they're relatively short. You know, it'll just give us a good sense for how hard you guys were going. But um, yeah, I mean, we saw the higher lactates in in more of the uh, the pure climbers with, with Steph and Chris, and then and uh, you were a little bit lower with that, which would indicate that you know you're you know you're you're pacing yourself and you don't produce a lot of lactate. And one thing I don't think we've we've talked about too much is just the um, training habits across all three riders either. You know, and that's that's maybe another question, you know, to think about with with Chris coming off of uh, cross season, you know, I mean, does he have a, a better ability at this point to, to push those shorter, harder efforts where you train more like a time trial? It's like this long, steady, you know, is that going to limit you over time? And I know we saw some pretty cool things with your 
uh, lactate data from the lab <clears throat> that might have indicated, you know, it was it partly your training, is it partly your genetics, like you know, just what you're predisposed to, where you're you're just going to pace yourself more and produce less lactate, and you're just somehow better adapted to, yeah, to ride that edge but not go over it. Whereas Chris and Seth, I mean, Seth is Seth is obviously hugely gifted <laughs> with his physiology, so even you know, on his uh, essentially off-season time here, he's he's still able to push really hard. You know, with Chris, does part of his training play into this, what he's sort of geared toward? I wonder about that, too. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll tell you with me, my, my lactate levels are, are naturally pretty low, and that's typical of the more time trial-style rider, where uh, Chris and Sepp are both getting up to 9, 10 mil, uh, millimoles per liter, which I don't think I've ever seen in my life. Um, which again is consistent with, with some of the research on the climber style rider. They can hit those higher lactates and and tolerate them. Um, if I start hitting six, I'm, I'm toast. I don't have anything left in my legs. You you made a good point, Ryan. I mean, the, there is a training aspect. There's also the fact that I was not acclimated and anybody can tell you when you go up to altitude and you're not acclimated, you can't go above threshold. It just kills you. So I was certainly, it took my, my normal time trial style physiology and, and kind of exaggerated it. All that being said, it the data shows that Sep and I were working harder, but not able to go as high above our lactate threshold, generally speaking. Is that, right. and that's kind of the basis for this. Climbers may thrive in terrain that allows them to uh, push above threshold and then uh, back off, clear it, push again, back off, clear it, and and vary their pace in order to perform at a, a higher level in a sense. Right. No, that was that was really cool. So remember, on both the long climbs, I averaged the exact same wattage. My lactate, my peak lactate on Flagstaff, so right at the end of the climb, was was four point six millimoles per liter. On left hand, it was six point one. So it was a little higher on left hand, but we did left hand a week later. We did Flagstaff just a couple days after I arrived at altitude, and one of the the adaptations, acute adaptations to altitude after about a week is actually an improvement in your anaerobic metabolism. So you would expect me to be able to hit a little higher lactate levels um, in that second week. So for all intents and purposes, my lactates were the same. Chris and Sepp averaged lower power on left hand, but on Flagstaff, their lactates were 6.4 and 5.6. So more in line with mine. On left hand, where they essentially did not perform as well, uh, relative, relative to me, they performed worse. Their lactates on left hand were 9.4 and 9.8. So they weren't performing as well, but physiologically, their body was their bodies were struggling more, which was absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, my theory, as Chris just said, or our theory, was this... Um, being able to vary their pace for climbers is critical to be able to manage lactate levels, to be able to maintain homeostasis. But, but Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. It seems like there's. It, it would be really interesting to take more lactate samples for uh, Chris and Seth. I think throughout something like uh, Flagstaff climb, where yeah, I mean we see so many times where their heat maps are above threshold. You know, they do seem to almost need that that variability to um, where they can push hard, sustain higher lactates, activate that glycolytic system and utilize that strength of theirs. And then when they do back it down, 
in, in some of those lighter sections, it just, it clears so quickly. I mean, yeah, they really do need that, but it would be interesting to see if for you, I'm sure your lactates were pretty similar throughout based on your pacing. Yeah. But yeah, with Chris and Steph, I wonder if we would see some bigger swings in that just based on their, on their heat maps. Yeah. They just, they just need that to allow their body to kind of physiologically do its thing, you know, future experiments. Yeah. yeah. They're all coming out. <laughs> well, you even saw it in our, in our descriptions. Uh, this was kind of fun. I remember we were at the top of Flagstaff. We all started talking about the wall. So anybody who's done Flagstaff, when you get to about the 20, for me, when you get to about the 20 minute mark, <laughs> for Sep, five minute mark, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, um, 15, yeah. You hit this wall that is 16, 17%. It's three minutes, but it looks like 10. It feels like 10 minutes of death. Uh, yeah. It, it kills you. It is the, the last time I ever had to get off a bike and walk up a climb was that climb, was that wall several Man, years ago. When was that? Uh, that would have been 2003. Okay. Uh, so was, a while back. A while back. Um, and I got to the top and I was like, the wall killed me because I had to go over threshold. I had to go into that anaerobic capacity range, that, that red on the heat map. And I blew up. I was done. From that point forward, I was crawling to the finish line. And while I'm sitting there complaining about the wall as the time trialer, Sep's like, oh, I was so happy when I got to the wall because then I could just go really hard for a bit. And, <laughs> that just, and that, you see that. You see that on the heat map. That's for sure. There's a giant, giant uh, spikes of red all where the where the wall is. And, and it doesn't actually fade away too much after that. No, that's what's amazing. He goes right back to that orange VO2 max range where you look at me, I go red for a little bit, and then all of a sudden you're seeing blues and greens. I am just crawling after that wall. And and that's, I think, the one of the big differences between that time trial style rider and that climber. The climber does better if they can vary the pace, if they can take advantage of their ability to tolerate those high lactate levels, as long as they have moments when they can back off. Where I performed relatively better on the very steady climb because I could just lock in my power and sit there. Trevor, you've been putting in some big miles recently. I saw your Strava account and uh, what was it, 800 miles you rode last week? <laughs> You really want to exaggerate it that much, Chris? I <laughs> yes, was, I did put in 800 miles. I was just... And then I worked a 70-hour work week, and I slept one hour a night. Yeah, well, that's actually not an exaggeration. And this is why I will never get life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of life insurance, Health IQ is a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists, runners, and people like you, Trevor. Uh, maybe not me. In any case, they're able to give us favorable rates for life insurance, and they have a special website just for us, Fast Talk listeners, www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk. Listeners of the show can go there for a free quote. While you're there, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or MapMyRun account, or other proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and get a better quote. One thing that's interesting too about the so the wall is the defining feature in a way of Flagstaff. It's steep, but I think it's too long for another tactic that came out of the data that Sep employed to to improve his climbing, which was 
pushing not on the steepest parts, but over the steepest parts. So you see that early on in his data or in his heat map where um, you have to compare gradients to, to power. And you'll notice that it's not so much on the steepest parts that he's he's locking into a nice pace, a nice hard pace on the steepest parts, but it's when he starts to crest that he really delivers a dose of, of power. And there's, if you're going up a steep section, a very steep section, and you add 50 watts of power, maybe you go a mile or two per, per hour, mile per hour faster. But if you wait until you're cresting and you really give the power then and accelerate over the top, you might put in 50 watts more power there, but you might actually accelerate three to four miles per hour. I don't know if there's any physics, science to back that up, but it just makes logical sense to me that that is a, a really smart way to use the drain to your advantage. Right. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever heard any science or physics behind it, but I know even uh, running when I was younger and yeah, learning to, to race on the road and running even, it was that was one of the key things that uh, better athletes would always tell me is, hey, you know, when you're getting to the top, it's, it's sort of what we fall back into. And, you know, whenever the body is getting weak or overloaded and we want to recover, you know, we just, oh, it's easier here. Let's slow down as opposed to, no, let's push a little more and get carry momentum. Yeah. And I think uh, Nordic skiers use this quite a bit as well. You know, they're uh, able to glide over top in a different way than maybe a, a cyclist would, but they're going to go steadier on the climb and then really give it a, a, a good push as they crest. So the, the one theory I had, and, and this is, I'm sure somebody will write in and, and absolutely destroy this <laughs> because I'm, I'm drawing on memory from many you years thrive ago. On, you thrive on that abuse though, don't you? I, I love that abuse. So please, somebody yeah. totally prove me wrong here. But I, I vaguely remember that when you relate velocity and acceleration to power, that velocity has a squared relationship to power, where acceleration has a cubic relationship to power. Nerd alert, nerd <laughs> alert. So, so there's, yes, my, my, my math of the day. But the point being here, when you are on that, that steep part of a climb, you're not really accelerating. You're just going a steady pace. When you come over the top, because the grade is decreasing, you are go even if you hold a steady power, you're going to accelerate. So if power has a bigger impact on acceleration than velocity, if you have a moment where you're going to go over threshold and push a higher wattage, use it where it's going to have a bigger impact, which is on acceleration. So don't use it on the, the steady part of the climb where really you might accelerate a little bit, but as soon as you finish putting out that big bit of power, you're going to slow right back down. Use it coming over the top to really enhance your acceleration, get up to speed, and then go back to holding that, that more steady threshold power. One of the other things that I know you'll love to talk about, Trevor, is the sort of the um, sense of someone's limits, particularly Sep. He had a great sense of his, his limits, and he didn't go over them, and he was within a particular ride the best pacer not best pacer between efforts but within an effort yeah. he wouldn't go too hard too early he would be very consistent throughout whereas you and i particularly me i went out way too hard and i think here's one of those excuses 
in cyclocross, the start is extremely important. You go out really hard. I maybe that had some bearing on why I was going out so damn hard, but it it backfired. You know, you go out, you blow up a little bit. It's hard to recover on a climb. It's hard to recover at altitude, and you pay that that price. I was certainly the most consistent across efforts. Meaning, if you want to use an analogy, I'm that guy that no matter what restaurant I walk into, I order the same thing at every single restaurant. So it didn't matter if it was a 30-minute climb, it didn't matter if it was a 12-minute climb, didn't matter if it was variable or consistent. I just went, okay, 320 watts, let's hold it. So what's your what's your meal of choice, like a BLT or? <laughs> let's save that for no? a nutrition episode. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that's our next podcast, that's Fast Talk, yeah. Trevor's Lunch Choices. So this gets into that whole, and Brian, please, uh, since since Chris and I have a little bit of ego at stake here, jump in at any point. But the difference between a pro and uh, not pros, Chris and I. How's that sound? Sounds fine. I'm not definitely not a pro. <laughs> you I, dream. I, well, you I dream still, as if you're a pro. I still go into the pro races. I just get dropped a lot more. Than I used to. <laughs> right. um, hey, whatever works for you, Trevor. But what was absolutely fascinating with Sepp's profiles of his time trials is you you look at his heat map and you go, this guy doesn't know how to pace. He was going up in anaerobic capacity range constantly. He was way above threshold. He's, he's absolutely going to blow up. And then when we just did his uh, the, the, the trend line for his power and cadence, they were perfectly flat, perfectly horizontal. He did not, you know, even though you see variance in his power, his, the average power that he was holding did not change throughout each time trial. The only place it was different was on the, the 12 minute or 10 minute for him climb up Magnolia, where you actually saw his power go up over the course of the climb. Chris and I, over all the climbs, you saw a, a downward sloping trend line in both our power and our cadence. We both blew up to at least some degree on these time trials. So we did not pace ourselves nearly as well as Sep paced himself. And this, all this information, actually, it's interesting. It corresponds with our perception of, of all of this stuff, in a sense. We wrote brief summaries of, of how we felt, sort of diary entries of our pacing, our sensations during the climbs, and it matches up. I, I knew as soon as I was done with Flagstaff, oh, I went out too hard. I knew it. And I, I also described some of the, 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 the bursts that I put in and things like that. But it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting that our, our perceived effort matched up quite well with the data. Yeah, no, we were, we were all aware of what we were doing. You were particularly aware of the fact that you are in cross mode right now. So you were destroying those first two minutes. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, at one point I was, uh, beating left, uh, step up left hand for like the first four kilometers. I actually increased my gap because we didn't start at the same time. We, we had a minute in between each of us. And, um, yeah, I pulled away from step on left hand for first four K and then went off a cliff. You can see a change in your heat maps there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Down and he, uh... That's probably when he, no, that's not when he passed me, but there's definitely, if you see any giant holes in my data where I don't, I'm not, I stopped pedaling. It's because step passed me, 
while Instagramming and whistling. It's <laughs> <laughs> the same thing when he would, when that heat map change, I mean, yeah, it's where the grades let up, even on shallower grades, he's still, uh, he's still pushed. That, that was like his, his go time. Yeah. Right yep. there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And he actually, he did, I, he mentioned that in his, his sort of his, his, uh, thoughts and, and summary of his effort was he was looking on left hand for spots where he could surge like he does on a variable climb like flagstaff. They're fewer and farther between, but he sort of tried to employ that strategy uh, and obviously fairly effectively, not as effectively. Yeah. So uh, just because I'm not done making fun of you, Chris, we actually, uh, on Strava, you can put each of our, our, efforts overlay them on top of one another so you can see where we if we started at the same time where we would be relative to one another and on all three time trials there was a point right near the beginning of the time trial where chris was in the lead <laughs> all three. i'm telling you you got to race more cyclocross races trevor then you'll know what it's like this start is important I have done a few. I get it. And I get that you were in cross <laughs> mode. So that's, that's how I you were racing. on the brain. Yep. So I think the other really fascinating piece that came out of our uh, little study here was the, the biomechanical data we got from the Leomo devices. And um, Ryan's the most familiar with the technology and the data and interpreting it. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, um, between Sepp and Trevor, uh, I think they were the only, the only ones we had uh, some good data on. Yeah, I mean, we can see pretty clearly where Sepp just also, he had an extremely smooth pedal stroke and um, sort of a nice, you know, footprint of, of a pro rider at this level. To you know, we see that that Trevor's overall he has you know on the uh, on the left side some some dead spots in there, pretty consistent areas. Uh, just you know, to, to, to clarify here, we, we've beaten up on the fact that I was the slowest. We've beaten up on the fact that, that I blew up on the climb. So now let's also beat up on the fact that I have a horrible pedal stroke. Is, is there anything else we want to make fun of before we're done today? Please, uh, at this point, I, I've got nothing to lose. So let's go. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, we've probably seen worse, but... <laughs> maybe maybe once or twice wow that is yeah. the nicest compliment i've gotten the whole time we worked on this piece <laughs> we have seen <Yeah>. worse <laughs> i mean no what in your defense you did i know you were having some uh some back issues at the time which definitely affects your but we can see how it's affecting your pedal stroke but yeah i think with sep it just it just shows how um when he's at those high wattages we know he's out of the saddle attacking at that point you know that suits him i mean we see those dead spots showing up at that time when he's seated like that he's extraordinarily smooth you know i think with uh with yours trevor yeah it was just um we saw you know some consistency throughout there but once we once you got down on on some of the steeper sections that sort of seem to kind of throw you off your, your game there a little bit where, you know, maybe you had to get up and stand a little more. Um, and you, it, it just took you out of that ability to hold your steady pace. Then yeah, your biomechanics, um, started to break down a little bit more. So that piece was pretty interesting. And it's also interesting that you, when you look at that pelvic angle that really shows when somebody is standing up or seated, how actually, how rarely Sep stood up. And it was really just those moments to attack over the climbs where, 
again, to make fun of myself. Um, you saw me being much less consistent, getting, uh, we're, I'm talking right now about Magnolia. I was in and out of the saddle a lot more. You could see I was struggling a lot more. Yeah, we can see really clearly um, if we look more into the uh, Leoma data, especially on Magnolia, Seps, he, he had some very d distinct changes in his pelvic angle and, and they were all very similar. Like you see these little spikes when, it, when the angle changes and you can see they're very focused moments and then when we look at yours, we see initially, you know, some some changes in there somewhere that the spikes are a little bit higher. Other times they seem a little bit subdued. So it, it would indicate to me that, yeah, as you're struggling with those above threshold efforts, it's changing your biomechanics more, whereas SEPs biomechanics chain don't change as much. Does that make sense? It does. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why that would be. So Trevor's kind of, so yeah, when, when on those spots where we kind of, we see your pelvic angle change, I mean, it's sort of where... Yeah, your core is out. You're sort of wrestling the polar bear up there, right? And, uh, on the bike. And, uh, That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Seth is, he, he seems to maintain those biomechanics and he, re, you know, he gets to the same angles each time, you know, he's which was slaying a squirrel. It looks very easy. <laughs> he's got a broadsword. He just destroyed that thing. The thing that you showed me that was absolutely fascinating to me, um, you have this this circular graph that shows where your dead spots are happening on your pedal stroke and at what wattages. And you see, in my case, real issues with my left leg. And my back problem is unilateral, so that really shows that, yep, back problem is just taking me apart. But you look at seps and just almost no dead spots. And, and Ryan, you pointed this out, but really the only time you, it seems that you saw dead spots in his stroke was at lower cadences, higher wattages, which tended to be the moments he was standing up. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's what it seemed like. But even those, those dead spots, they didn't seem to affect him that much. In some cases, yeah, it was a little bit more on the left side than right side, but it's really, they seem really spread out where we get kind of that, that, that shotgun appearance of things. They seem very spread out. Whereas in others, we see that, like on your magnolia, we can see they're a little more focused um, in, in certain areas. So it almost, I'd almost look at that as, you know, yes, he has dead spots, but they're, they're like very small. They might affect him minimally throughout the pedal stroke as opposed to having like one huge area to worry about. But yeah, it seems to happen on those lower cadences. Where you look at mine and on that left leg, the, the, the coming over the top of the pedal stroke is just this solid green color. Yeah, and even with SEP, I mean, in general, too, we really don't see a lot of those dark blues. So, I mean, it speaks to his ability to just hold that higher cadence, and he, he's very well adapted to that. Whereas I, I feel like, yeah, that, and that might be one of those differences with um, pros versus amateurs. And we see this, I mean, now that it's indoor cycling season, you know, we always see people, they're on Wahoo Kickers, and, and whenever the, you know, the power is driven up, their first go-to, because it's flat, is oh, let's go to 100 RPMs to get through this interval, as opposed to, you know, allowing that force to develop over, over the pedals and, uh, you know, learning to produce more force on the pedals like that. So when they do go outside in the spring and summer and, and get on Flagstaff and Magnolia, they're, uh, it's not like this shock to the system when, um, you know, when they get on a 16% grade and all of a sudden their body breaks down because they're at 55 or 60 RPMs. Which was really interesting because we talked with Sepp about that. He said that in training, on climbs, he spends a lot of time working on cadence. So he loves these intervals where he'll do a couple minutes at like 50 RPM and then a couple minutes at 110 RPM. And he just goes back and forth. Always the same wattage, but we'll, we'll work on both the, the high cadence and the low cadence. 
But what we couldn't get in, into the article, we just didn't have the space as much as we wanted, was when he's actually time trialing, it was remarkable compared to Chris and I, uh, how high a cadence he held and how consistent. His cadence would only vary about 20 RPM, even on climbs like Magnolia and um, and Flagstaff, and where you would see Chris and I getting down towards, you know, bogging, out, bogging down, basically, hitting 50 RPM. I don't think Sepp ever dropped below 60. I think that uh, that speaks to the fact that he wasn't going as slow as us, so he was able to maintain a higher cadence uh, given his gears, which I don't, he wasn't riding anything special, you know, in terms of uh, race gears. But we probably should have if we wanted to be at our at our best on a climb like Magnolia. So it, it speaks to the fact that if you really want to be a good climber, you should. There might be a point where your ego should be set aside and you get the gearing and the compact crank set or the the combination of gears front and back that works for you, your terrain, um, and your skill set. And this, so when we did look at the research on climbing, I looked for studies that explored biomechanical differences uh, between climbing and riding on the flats. And there were a couple that found differences, found differences in muscle firing patterns. Uh, so initially it did look like climbing was different, but then when they, they factored in cadence, those differences went away. So the, the conclusion of one of these studies was that, yes, we have different, different muscle firing patterns climbing, but it's entirely due to the fact that our cadence drops when we climb. And the other thing they showed in this study is it's less efficient. So the conclusion of the study was learn how to keep a higher cadence climbing um, if you can, because you're you're potentially going to climb better. And the more you can actually have your, your cadence on a climb look like your cadence on the flats, potentially the better you're going to do and, you know, the more efficient muscle firing pattern you're going to have. And that's exactly what we see with SEP, not with you and I. So you guys need to get on. on Trevor, needs to, Trevor needs a compact. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, I'm already in mid compact. What are you riding, Trevor? I'm on. I will. 36. I'm I'm old. I can't go to compact. It's just it's against the rules. <laughs> they sell those now everywhere. You also live in, um, the majority of the your time is spent in Toronto, where you could probably ride a seventy five front uh, a tooth front chain ring. <laughs> yes, but my whole time in in Colorado, I refused to ever go compact. As a matter of fact, when I got a new bike there and it came with a compact, I just took it off and sold it. So oh boy, maybe I should be rethinking. But I I will tell you that. You know, I'm I'm now 11 speed, and the idea of getting that 32 <laughs> You're now on the back, 11 speed. <laughs> They've gone to 13 already, by by the way. <laughs> You're that far behind. I went to 11 speed in September. Thank you. I say no more. <laughs> well, those tips right there lead well into maybe what we should close with, which is, what do you do with all of this great information? What should people take away from this podcast? What can they do themselves to go out and be a better climber? Yeah, yeah. I think um, pacing and uh, egos can go a long way. So I think, uh, like I said, I see a lot of um, a lot of our athletes where they do have a hard time pacing. Being able to work on that and get we can get everybody to that area, <laughs> like let Sep's level of understanding essentially, you know. And um, this is another one where someone can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but years ago there was uh, um, a life coach seminar that they came to where I was working, 
and he had a term called telio anticipation. And it's something I still um, use these days with my athletes. And I throw that around and they look at me funny when I say it. But, um, but really with that, what it is, is having that ability to that, that forethought to say, okay, I'm climbing for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, whatever that case is, and say, and intuitively know kind of pretty close what you can hold, you know, and it's not always related to just the power or just heart rate, but it's just those sensations in your legs. So I think different ways we can help athletes learn how to pace themselves and, and have that anticipation can really help them with the climbs. And then if we pair the kind of the, the ego piece with it to say, yeah, hey, it's okay to get a bigger cassette if you need one, you know, and, and uh, learn, like take that load off your legs so you can accumulate more, more time climbing without being overly fatigued. Um, I think those are, you know, two big areas that I, that I always shoot for with athletes. I think to, to, to step back from that just a second and, and maybe one of the first steps is knowing what type of rider you actually are. Are you somebody who is physiologically built like Sep and I, so a climber, so to speak, or are you more built like Trevor, the time trialist body? Do you thrive when things are um, steady and consistent, or do you thrive when it's more technical, when there are changes in grade? turns, corners, and so forth. And once you've identified which rider type you are, then you can work towards the strengths that you have. Since you're the time trialist, Trevor, maybe you should go into how you take this information and put it into practice. Yeah, and you should do the the same for, for climbing. But as the time trial style rider, and I can tell you this from experience racing, because I've actually... I've had some of my best races on very uh, hilly courses. But I really, when we hit a climb, uh, I just ignore what's going on with the rest of the field. Guys attack, I don't care. I am just going to lock it in at my power, and I am going to get up that climb as fast as I can, but it's going to be very steady. And what I tend to find is guys will attack, they'll go up the road, but I know that most of the time I'm going to see them again pretty soon. To some degree, especially if the whole peloton's responding, you do need to respond to those attacks uh, because there there still is a, a aerodynamic effect from the or a, a, a drafting effect from the peloton on climbs, and if you get popped, you're probably done. So you do need to respond to a degree, but you have to be really careful as the time trial style rider of too many efforts above, you're going to blow up. And I always have that point where I just go, okay, now I'm doing my own pace wherever that puts me especially on those steep, nasty climbs. As a time trial, you need to know which climb you thrive on, and it's those steadier, lower-grade ones. And in the past, I have taken advantage of those to try to hurt, actually, the climbers by just driving at a high pace that I know they're going to be sitting on my wheel, never get that chance to recover, and I'm going too fast for them to really launch a good attack and know that they are hating what I'm doing to them. Chris, you remember we were on Mount Evans, and you were putting the boots to me on all the steep parts. So we got to that hour long steady grade and, and that's where I made you suffer for, for what you've been doing to me earlier on. Do you remember that? Yes. I try to forget it, but. <laughs> so Chris, what, uh, what about as a climber? What, what do you recommend? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in a way the opposite of that. You know, you want to vary your pace and that's because of the sort of the hypothesis we came up with, which is you thrive when you're able to go above threshold and then settle back and clear 
and then do it again and, and, and re- repeat that process. I think that's when knowing the climb itself is a, is a, is a great thing because you can hurt your rivals that are built like time trials even more, both physically and psychologically, of course. Don't stare at your power meter and think that I need to go at a certain pace because it's my threshold. You know, you can go over it. The question is how much and how often, and you have to experiment to figure that out. People that are pure climbers tend to be smaller people, lighter people. That's a a, a part of your advantage when it comes to climbing. It's a disadvantage when you're on flats, but you can use it to your advantage because you don't suffer the consequences as much when you stand and push out of the saddle. So ride to those, ride to your strengths, um, hurt time trialists when you can by attacking them. And don't be afraid to put in those surges well above threshold, but make sure that you're aware of how hard and how often you can do that. Those are the breakdowns sort of for the different groups, but there's definitely some other things we could pull out of our study that uh, applies to everyone. So I've, I've got two other suggestions on my end. One, so this it was, uh, Sep brought this up, um, actually in a previous interview I did with Joe Dombrowski, he brought this up, play with cadence. If you don't have climbs near you, do this on the flats. If you have climbs, go and, and do threshold efforts up those climbs or sweet spot efforts up those climbs, but do that variance in cadence. Do some of it at 50, 60 RPM, then go up to 110 RPM and then drop back down. This is something I have heard again and again from climbers is learning how to climb at both a low cadence and a high cadence. So I think that is one of the most important take-homes. And then I think the biggest theme underlying this whole podcast that I hope has been clear to everybody is go to my Strava, see what I'm doing. Don't do any of that. Because <laughs> <laughs> apparently very, I very suck in every way to, possible to... when it comes to climbing. <laughs> Use Trevor as an example of exactly what not to do. That is great advice. We should put that on a T-shirt. Oh, and by the way, hire me as your coach after telling you that. (laughs) Do as I say, not as I do. Right. I think some of the other things we touched upon when we were talking about Leomo data is a a, a strong core is really critical for for climbing well. If you don't have that strong core, you turn into a sloppy mess like like Trevor. And his, of course, was, was built off of the... Um, fact that he had this back issue that led to a, a weaker core, but um, the same applies if you're perfectly fit and no no injuries, but your core is weak, you'll break down. It, it, it will happen at some point in, in your climbing. Again, to go back to uh, the way that Sep showed how he could attack over climbs and not necessarily on the steepest parts of climbs, I think that's really valuable advice for people to up their game quite a bit when it comes to climbing in a more sophisticated way. It's something that neither Trevor and I did very well at all. I'm looking forward to thinking about climbing more in that way when the summer comes around and I start doing more of it. It's, it's, uh, it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out on the road. And without going into a ton of detail, um, because this is a very, you know, in a, in a way, a controversial issue. 
it comes down to weight in a sense and being lighter is is better there are healthy ways to lose weight if if that's what you're looking to do we've had podcasts essentially about that very topic but you know you want to target a percentage of body fat that's not too low 9% roughly for men 11% for women or thereabouts and do it in a healthy way and not drop weight in a, a particularly fast or unhealthy way. Yeah, um, this, let me just interrupt really quickly. This is in the research, and this is really important. Um, and Dr. Inigo Samalan has brought this up in the past. Uh, when you are talking about a spare tire around your waist, losing weight is only going to make you faster up climbs. So it's great to lose that weight. Once you drop below that healthy body fat percentage, once, once you drop below a certain weight and you start, you're going to start losing muscle mass, you're going to start losing important tissue, then actually you can hurt your power to weight ratio. You can actually become a weaker climber. So there is a, or a slower climber. There is a point where dropping more weight is going to hurt you, not help you. You know, I look at it as a constant series of choices that gets you there. It's not like one big thing where you go on an extreme diet or anything like that. It's a, it's a constant series of the right choices that are going to trend you in that direction. And that's where you can then avoid getting too low because you'll be able to see that trend line essentially. Thank you, Ryan, for all of your effort on the project and your time today. Again, thanks to the Performance Center here at the University of Colorado. And just to, just to pitch another article that appears in the January issue um, that Ryan helped me write. Ryan did much of the work on it. Of course, he's a, a trained nutritionist. And this article, the diagnosis column in this month's issue, is about a writer who was struggling to lose weight. And Ryan helped him lose weight in a very smart and intelligent and methodical way, which is the right way to do it. So check that article out in this month's issue. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor and Ryan Kohler, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thank you.